So completed um, now four full days of practice. Came here five days ago, but who's counting? And um, again, um, deep bows to your sincerity and um, really meeting death as much as we possibly can here. And um, I've heard a number of, um, from a number of people in the group practice discussions saying, well, I told my friends or family I'm going to a death retreat and they kind of looked at me. (laughs) So, uh, yet, um, on another level, it makes so much sense. This death is equally as part of life. I'd like to begin with um, the words of uh, Crowfoot, who's a Native American, a Blackfoot chief. And he says, what is life? He says, it is like a flash of a firefly in the night. It is like the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is like a little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. Like a flash of a firefly in the night. Of course, as we look at the expanses of time, it's perhaps even not even barely that. It's interesting on the, just thinking about that, the spans of time, there's some, in the canonical literature, some metaphors of time. For example, a bird flies over the highest mountain in the world and brushes its wing on the top of it once every hundred years. And the time that it will take for gradually that high mountain to become ground into a plain. The fathoms of time that has come and gone. World systems coming and gone. It's really a mystery what has happened. How long has this been going on? How long will it continue? I shared with you my... um, Realization at the age of four when I first realized uh, that I and everyone was going to die and that could happen at any moment. And as I said earlier, that really had a huge impact on my life as I look back on it. And it's interesting, I began to think about like growing up and we had a ritual at night. Some of you may have done this, maybe some not. But we... um, my, when my parents put me to bed, we said this prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That used to scare the bejesus out of me. <laughs> I mean, and then, good night, Bob, see you later, and the door closes. <laughs> I'm in the dark, and I'm kind of working out a deal that I'll make it to the morning. <laughs> if I die before I wake, I'm a little kid. 
if I die before I wake. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody know that one? Yeah. Yeah. But the living and the dying is happening all the time as we've been teaching. There's a, a teaching in the canonical literature called Living with the Many. And it's actually corresponding now. There's actually a lot of science about this, about biomes. As a human being, we consider ourselves to be 100% human, but the science says we're about 10% human and about 90% organisms. My teacher, Tampulucero, gave a teaching on this for 81 straight nights on the 81 different families of organisms that live in the body. And of course, there's way more than 81. But this is actually part of the older canonical literature. Like the ones that live in the eyes, the ones that live in the nose, the ears, and different orifices and different places. And he'd always end with a poem at the end of the teaching. He'd talk about the ones that live in the eyes and go through the whole thing. And then it would end with this poem that he had us learn in Burmese. Po aim posa ikanda godi dudo thinjine pi. And that means that these organisms eat of the body, they need food, and because they have a food in the digestive system, they urinate and they defecate. And then because they want to continue on, they copulate with their partners, and then they have babies, and then they gradually go old, and then they die, and thus your body is a cemetery. That would be the, that would be the end of the discourse, then we'd get the next one the next night. Who is that guy, this... This this 80-year-old monk teaching about the organisms in the body. When I first ordained in Burma, we would recite head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, Tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. The 32 parts of the body meditation. And of course, each of these parts is a gateway into all of the parts of the body, because you might be wondering, why those parts, and what about other parts? But to come into this body, when you're getting your head shaved, they're chanting, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and so forth coming into the body, realizing this body. Not that you have to be a monk, but part of my monkhood was going to the cemetery in the middle watch of the night. That's from 10 to 2. And I remember going there with my teacher, and, and the meditation instructions were very simple. Go sit, go sit somewhere and just... Be aware of what comes up, that you're going to die, that everyone is going to die. And the Burmese cemeteries are not like um, our Western ones, and uh, maybe not quite as graphic as far as leaving bodies out. 
but um, just a simple ash pit with bones in there. And also around in that cemetery, there was scattered bones, femurs, and so forth. It was powerful to go there. First went with a group of monks, and then later I, I felt inside my heart, and I don't say this to make myself special, but I had to go there by myself in the middle of the night to play that edge. It was powerful walking in this darkness. It's a few miles to the cemetery. I'd imagine my teacher walking in front of me and my other teachers beside me and my other teacher behind me and I'm reciting again this sutta called the Kanda Sutta, which means any beings as I'm walking towards the cemetery, whether it be the no-footed or the many-footed, take heed of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha and uh, do not cause me any pain or snake bites or so forth. And going to the cemetery and then staying there. Just like you, today, you went to the cemetery. You did the cemetery practice. Bearing witness to what gets evoked in our hearts and our bodies. Tonight I want to spend some time to and we've, we've pointed to this, the, the, why do this practice? And again, I believe that Eugene was saying that the Buddha and, and Venerable Nalio was speaking about the, the benefits of this practice. Meeting death. Perhaps this journey, the benefits from the death to the deathless. There's actually a quote that I want to read. Oh, yeah. This is from, um, actually, this is from the Tao Te Ching. It says that death might appear to be the issue in life and since every three out of ten beings that are born, three out of ten die. Then why should another three out of ten continue breeding death? Perhaps because of sheer madness to multiply. But there is one out of ten, they say, so sure of life that a tiger, a wild bull, keep clear of his or her inland path. Weapons turn away from this yogi on the battlefield. No bullhorn could tell where to gore this person. No tiger claw where to tear. No weapon to enter. And why? Because there's no death to die. One who has awakened, there's no death to die. I mentioned the other night about it's very common for many people to these 
three um, very primary fears about death, the fear of physical pain, the fear of emotional pain, the fear of the loss uh, of identity. So I'd like to just, um, just acknowledge this for a moment and not to spend a lot of time on it, but the fear of physical pain, I mean, certainly we all know about this. There's so many ways that we can feel pain from medical conditions, accidents, illnesses, disabilities, splinters, cuts, scrapes, sprains, general aging. I like to say at 65, they, you know, the tires are getting a little out of alignment, they get a little, little where? Right about right here, and over here, and up here. Lots of things can give us physical pain, getting sunburned, getting thirsty, hungry, not feeling comfortable. There's thousands of ways. Of course, we fear, for a number of us, fear the, the physical pain and dying and death. The dying process, depending on the illness or what's happened, can be painful and sometimes medications have to be, uh, could be needed. The body's in a transition from the living and to the dying. There's the fear of emotional pain. It's abandonment, separation, disconnection. Of course, in our interpersonal relationships, being liked, fear of being made fun of, humiliation, shame, loving, being loved, making money, having enough, all types of feelings of security, often insecurity, the wanting to be seen, the longing to be felt, to be understood. And at times we can feel forsaken, not included, left behind, a sense of unworthiness, inadequacy, humiliation, isolation, the fear, the pain of not belonging. So much at times the fears of these emotional pains. The sense of separation. That when I die, I'll be separated from everything I know and love. This, even this wondrous earth. And we live in a very funny culture that is really, in so many ways, a death-denying and pain-denying culture. I always felt it ironic that it's called health insurance, but it's actually about sickness. It's called life insurance, but it's about death. I mean, there's something like... I don't quite get it. We dye our hair so we'll look gray. We try to hide ourselves with our aging with surgeries and all types of things. Yet the clock is ticking. Each moment it's ticking a moment closer. The, you know, this wondrous moment at some time, the father's sperm and the mother's, mother's egg met and boom! That was the moment of conception. And that began at that moment of conception, the irreversible process of maturation, of aging, like a wick that has been lit and it's slowly burning down. And we don't know whether it's going to just burn down due to the lack of fuel or does it get blown out? And if it gets blown out, when? Will it be early on, middle, late? We don't know. 
This is what we live with. And again, how wonderful and powerful for you to come here to, to meet this, to acknowledge and work with these realities. The fear of the loss of the sense of I. Ay, ay, ay. That I will not exist. That this I, this slash body, will decompose and turn into dust. Perhaps one of the greatest fears that this I will be no more. The ultimate abandonment, separation, and disconnection. Rod McClava writes that 50 trillion cells make up the human body, and each of those cells in turn consists of atoms, millions, perhaps billions of them, depending on the function of the specific cell. And the atoms, of course, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. And this human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is a space held together, a space unified, even for only a little while, by a life force. The atoms that existed before, these atoms existed before the human body, and they'll exist after this life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, the atoms are held together by an indescribable and unknowable force. We can just call it our life, but it beckons us to ask, who am I? What is this? What is this? It was those questions that awakened Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the Buddha. I think many of you know the story of him being born into a noble family and being destined to become a, a great king. And when, uh, shortly after his birth, it was very traditional for some um, sages to come and take a look at the baby, to look at the ears, the arms, the legs, and give him bodily signs and try to make predictions. And evidently, there was five of them, and four of them said he's going to become a great king, and one of them said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. The youngest one, his name was Kodanya. And the king um, got concerned about that, because the king's heart um, wanted Siddhartha to become a king like himself. And because of that apprehension, Siddhartha lived a very sheltered and uh, a very privileged life palaces in each season and educated and you know every type of sensual delight was met and this went on for many years till his 29th year 
And something beckoned in him to um, want to go outside of the palace and into the, the kingdom. So he called his Uber driver, Chana, the charioteersman, and, uh, and they went out. And um, there's a story, a sequence of him going out four times, and each time going out, finding something that shook him to the core. First was the discovery and the realization of an old person. And when asked, Chana, who's this? goes, well, this is an old person. If you live long enough, you, um, you'll get old. No one can escape from aging. And he came across an ill person, came across a corpse, and realized this is going to happen to me and to everyone. This really rocked his soul, if you will. And he became very distraught and began to think about, I'm not sure if I want to become a king. I, I don't know what to do now. And even all these wonderful things around him didn't seem to have the most uh, wonderful aspects anymore. So we went for this fourth outing and he came across um, like a holy person, a sannyasin, a ascetic. And even though this person was dressed in robes, there was something about this person, how they walked, how they conducted themselves that had a sense of um, peacefulness. It brought, he got curious and he asked Chana, who is this? And, and so Chana said, this is a person that's dedicating themselves to understand the meaning of life. This is a wanderer, a spiritual person. And when Siddhartha heard that, he realized that this is what he must do. There's a Pali word, it's called samwega. It's a powerhouse of a word, just like sometimes some of these words like dukkha. It's a big one word, but means a lot, which is suffering, dissatisfactoriness, and so forth. Samwega means when you have the realization that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. There is nothing more important than to understand what is this life. So you could say that uh, Siddhartha Gautama had that hugely and realized that he had to leave the palace. I want to say that I, I know that every single person here has also met these four heavenly messengers. I don't think you could be in this retreat if you haven't met or acknowledged the aging that you've seen and also experienced in yourself, no matter what age you are. And illness, whether you're experiencing it inside of you or have or knowing that you will have or those of you that, uh, that know others that are ill. And of course, death. And of course, this fourth heavenly messenger that somehow pointed that maybe there is a way that I can understand. That's why you're, I believe that's why we're here. Maybe there is a way. I've had many four, fourth heavenly messengers in my life, but one in particular, I'm so, uh, 
So, you know, I shared with you that I had, you know, had these early deaths in my life, and it really uh, left me just lost and confused for many years. And it was coinciding with the Vietnam War, and the times were changing. And I, I was truly very lost. And school didn't make much sense to me, but after graduating high school and some friends went off to college, I had a very high draft number, so I wasn't drafted, fortunately. And I really didn't know what to do. And um, a friend of mine, so I didn't even think about college, but I heard a friend of mine was saying, well, I'm going to take a fifth year of high school to try to get into a college. And I was working at a barbecue chicken restaurant, and I didn't know if I wanted to continue doing that long term. So I decided to take a fifth year of high school myself. And um, in the meantime, in high school, I, I got into downhill skiing. So I applied to a couple of colleges um, in, in the ski, where there was skiing, and I got accepted to one school. It's called Linden State College in Lindenville, Lindenville, Vermont, in the Northeast Kingdom. Very beautiful there, and I got accepted. And so, you know, I'm going to school and also majoring in drinking, smoking marijuana, and trying to have girlfriends, and, um, and other things. <laughs> And uh, at the end of two years, I got a, a letter from, an official-looking letter from my school informing me that I had flunked out. And, because um, that's really what I was majoring in, getting high, getting drunk, and trying to have girlfriends. And, um, and ski. <laughs> and so uh, my mother was really upset, and my father, of course, and, and they're saying, and so we called the school and, and I was able to be readmitted with a warning. And my mother begged me, isn't there something that would interest you in school? Look in the catalog. Maybe there's something. And so I said, all right. And um, I didn't want to take any more reading, writing, arithmetic, history, or science, even though they're wonderful courses. But there's something that perked my interest. Though I could only understand the first few words, and then there was a colon, then there was a bunch of words after that that I couldn't even understand or repronounce. I can now. But the, the first words that I recognized right, right away was it was called the wisdom of the East. And that, that caught me. Because um, growing up, we had the opportunity occasionally to to go to a restaurant, and my favorite restaurant was going to Chinese restaurants because I love Chinese food. And, um, and there was something about the, the images of this. Sometimes there was Buddhism there and so forth. There's something that I, I recognized that, that that had to do with the East. I'm going to take this class. After the colon, it said Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But I didn't even know what that was. But it said wisdom of the East. I'm going to take this class. And um, I'll never forget going into that class on the very first day. And my teacher was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I'd never had a teacher like that before, believe me. They're always sitting behind their desk and they look really scary and they're very formally dressed. And he's in a full lotus position. And the way that he held himself and spoke, like, wow, what, who, who is this guy? His name is Bill Jackson. 
And um, he assigned to us the Tao Te Ching by Latsu, and I began to read it, and I couldn't believe that I'd never been exposed to this type of way of thinking about life, and I resonated so deeply with the Tao Te Ching. And the way that Bill taught, there was something about him, like, who is this guy? Like, I, I, I sense that he actually knew something important. I didn't know what it was that he knew, but I began to, I knew that I wanted to know what he knew. He was pointing by his just his embodied presence that maybe there's another way. In the Tao Te Ching, I kept on, there's just 81 different epigrams of poems, and epigram number 47, I, I kept on reading it over and over and over again, trying to understand its meaning. This epigram was particularly important to me, and just to kind of shorten it, 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 it says something like, there's no need to look outside your window, for everything you need to know is inside you. I kept on reading that. There's no need to look outside your window. Everything you need to know is inside you. And I began to realize just how lost I had been, how I was, I didn't even know if I was looking for anything, but I realized that if I want to begin to know something, I need to begin to look in here. Someone asked the, the Venerable Achan Thai forest master, like, what books can I read for the Dharma? And he said, this is the book to read. This is the book. No need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. This was such a powerful teaching for me. And so that's really when I began to look inwards, to begin to meditate many, many years ago. Of course, that led to... Um, many things, traveling to Burma, ordaining as a monk for a period of time, and also living in a monastery as an attendant to the monks at that point, no longer a monk, and caring for my teachers for eight and a half years. And this was in, uh, in Santa Cruz area. We founded a monastery there called Tungpulu Monastery. I learned a lot being with those monks. About humility, about contentment. And my teacher, Langditsero, he was one of the most contented human beings I ever experienced in my life. And, you know, I lived with him for over eight years. And... Um, it, it seemed like that he was totally content just to be in his room and he didn't need anything. As a matter of fact, you know, different types of spiritual and just people in general, some people have more of like a charisma where like you, you notice them. So just to give you a little bit of the idea around Lyndon Seto, he was the opposite of charisma. <laughs> if you went into a room you might notice the furniture first before you notice him. My other teacher, Tampu Seto, was very charismatic. And, or Bakoku Seto, very charismatic. But Lyndon Seto, there, there, like, there was just no one there. 
There's so many nights that I would just be at his feet, giving him a massage, and just listening to his breath. And that breath would take me to the, some of the most deepest forests that I've ever been to. thought of another blinded Cero story where I had an opportunity one night. He, he was following these ascetic practices. He, 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 he didn't lie down. Tampulu said, oh, my other teacher, he didn't lie down for the last 50 years of his life. It's a, this is an ascetic practice. Sit in a chair. But he'd take some rest in the chair. But one night, blinded Cero was, you know, he was in his chair. And I guess I gave up my room for a monk. And so blinded Cero said that I could, I could stay in his room. And so I remember I, I actually put my bed on the floor, <laughs> uh, just a blanket, and, um, and he was in the chair right near me. And, um, you know, it felt like Christmas Eve. I was so excited to be sleeping with my Seattle. Don't get me not sleeping with, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's sleeping with my Seattle. And, and um, I was so excited I could barely, barely sleep. And of course, I wanted to know what he was doing. And so every now and again, I'd open my eyes and look at him. And every time I opened my eyes and looked at him, he, he smiled back at me. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I turn over and I'm falling asleep. And then I turn on back on this side. And, and, and I open my eyes, eensy beensy little bit. And he's looking at me smiling. It's like, ay, ay, ay. Who was that guy? He gave me one of the most profoundest teachings on how to die, and I want to share it with you. The last time I saw him, he died at the age of 98. At the time, he was about 92, and I, I went to Burma. My beloved wife gave me a surprise present uh, with the help of our community. It took a village to get Bob Goes to Burma. That was what was on the card. And all my friends and community donated some money so that I could go see my teacher one more time. It was really, oh my gosh. And um, so I went, and, and on the very last night, I was to leave the next day to come back to San Francisco, and I, um, I realized I had one more question for him. I had asked every question I could ever imagine with him. But I had one more. And so I asked him this question. I said, Cero, you're 92. You already have exceeded the average lifespan. And you've been a monk over 72 years. He ordained at the age of 20. He was a novice monk before that for some years, but they only count from the age of 20 on. So he completed already 72 years in the robe, and he was a deep meditator. And so I asked Seto, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? Because, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're getting up there. I'm, I mean, I'm 47. I also know that, you know, death could come at any moment. But, you know, what are you going to do? And so he paused and he kind of looked at me for a while. And, and then I saw his cheek move up and down, which was not a good sign. <laughs> and then he said, but with a smile, he said to me, Bob, are you afraid to die? And he kind of caught me off guard because I was asking what he was going to do and he's asking me whether I'm afraid I'm going to die. And he could see I was a little bit like... <laughs> and then he said to me, you need to meditate more. 
And I said, okay, Sato, but really, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? That was the question. And so he looked at me for a long, long time. And then he smiled and he said something that I'll, I'll never forget. And this is my own aspiration now. It's a powerful teaching. And it's incredibly simple. He said, if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If I smell or taste something, I'll be mindful of smelling and tasting. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of feeling. If there's some mind states, thoughts and emotions that are arising, I will be mindful of thoughts and emotions. This is how I will die. This is how I want you to die. Mm. What a teaching. Some years later, I even told this to my 103-year-old grandma. You know, I know everyone's going to die, but I began to wonder, you know, is she going <laughs> to? But I told her, I actually told her this around on her 100th birthday. And, you know, she's this old Jewish lady born in, uh, in Lithuania. And in her own wisdom, she said, Bobby, that is a great idea. She got it. She got it. Why not die mindfully? She thought that was good. I was, I thought just... Touched me deeply. Yeah. Blessings to the shadows and to Grandma. You know, I want to speak a little bit about the hereafter. That was brought up today in a question. And, um, you know, it's very interesting because some of you may be aware that in Buddhist cosmology, there's these worlds of existence and you could say psychologically that we can experience them right here and now in this life when we're feeling very altruistic and loving. We're like in the world of the, of the divine. And when we're feeling very stingy and angry and hurting others, we're, we're in very painful existences. But according to these teachings, depending on when we die, this fuel of this energy, if it's not fully enlightened, continues around the world of samsara into birth, old age, disease, and death. That's why the Dharma places so much emphasis on taking responsibility for our own, that we are the, the hearers of our own actions, our own deeds, born out of our intentions. Our intentions inform our thoughts and emotions, they inform our speech, they inform our action. Satana and Pali, intention of volition, is what fuels more of a wholesome or a more productive way of, of, um, of actions. And conversely, when they are more with greed or hatred and ignorance, produce more unfavorable actions and reactions. But it's very interesting in the teachings, because you know, some are like, well, I don't know about this hereafter and so forth. So I'm not going to give you an argument that there is 31 planes of existence. But that, that is part of this cosmology. And the essence is that the awakened being becomes free of birth, old age, disease, and death. The awakened being becomes free of that. They enter into what's called parinibbana, with the dharma element, the dharma datu. Finally, delivered from birth, old age, disease, and death. But the Buddha also says, because that, you know, that is kind of, you know, 
we can have a lot of discussion with it. And so I'm not going to ask you to believe that or not. But here's another teaching from the Buddha that I think is very reasonable. And it's from the Kalama Sutta. And it was, um, the Kalama was was an area in northern India, or southern Nepal, not sure exactly where it is, geography, somewhere up in that area. And the Kalamas were a group of people, villages that were really into Dharma practice really into practice. That's where actually the Buddha gave the talk on the, on the, the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. And it was here he also gave the Kalama Sutta. And the Kalama Sutta is probably most famous for like the Sutta of a free, the charter of free inquiry. Like don't believe the teacher because the teacher says so. Don't believe the books or by hearsay. See for yourself your own experience. I know I mentioned that the other day with this quality of investigation. And he also gives a teaching on another very important, this three important teachings, this investigation to see, you know, um, don't believe the teacher, see for yourself with your own experience. Secondly, he, did, he offers this teaching about the criterion. How do you know if a spiritual path is good or not? And so he, he says that if, and he doesn't say my path, but he says if any path that you're practicing is leading you towards more contentment, more open-heartedness, more clarity of mind, the lessening of greed, hatred, and ignorance, you know from your own direct experience that path is beneficial. Or conversely, if it's making you with more greed, more hatred, more ignorance, perhaps that's not the best path to follow. So I love, like, he's offering a, a very practical type of criterion. And even in today's age, there's so many different spiritual paths, so many different ways. And what type of criteria do we use to determine if this is helpful or not? So I love that criterion. Is it lessening greed? Is it lessening hatred? Is it lessening ignorance? Is it increasing contentment? The opposite of greed. Is it increasing open-heartedness? The opposite of hatred. Is it increasing clarity of mind and heart? Knowing wisdom where you get caught and getting yourself uncaught, the opposite of ignorance. So I love that as a criteria. And then lastly, he offers this, these solaces or assurances. And he says, if there is a world after death, and if there's fruit of the actions, for example, by lessening your own greed, hatred, and ignorance, and there is an afterworld, you'll probably be born in a heavenly world. And he says, if there is no world after death, however, in this very life, if you're living with the lessening of greed, hatred, and ignorance, the increasing of contentment, open-heartedness, and clarity, that in this very life, you get the results of living the good life in the here and now. Which is such, I think, a beautiful, like, you know, we, you know we, we can speculate about is there something after, but the results of living in this life it bears great fruits, whether there's a hereafter or not. Of course, within these teachings, this meeting death and the potentialities of liberation. And liberation, from the Dharma point of view, is this 
lessening and gradual eradication of greed and hatred and ignorance that exists within our five senses, in our mind and heart. So this is a great benefit of this practice, liberation. Another benefit that I just want to speak about that I think is so important is that with the mindfulness of death, it really helps us to understand the preciousness and the fragility of this life, to make this life matter. Make this life matter. So making it matter, it may be that we need to do like a little inventory or a big, huge inventory inside us. The places where we're still continuing to hold on, where we're stuck, where we're in a place of um, harboring resentments and ill wills. Very important practice to begin to make amends. My mother-in-law, Charmaine, she is a really powerful teacher in my life. She had some wonderful times of life and many children, grandchildren. She was very beloved. She, to give an idea, like whenever she would write a card to us, she would always... Um, She'd always write, her signature was your special love mom. Every card you got from her was your special love mom. And she really, she was simple in her own ways. She was, um, her husband left her for another person. I mean, she had deep pains and betrayal. But as I watched her live and, and die, She was the type of person, I I really don't know, she wasn't a meditator, she didn't go to church much. I don't know how she did it, but I I really felt in my heart that she had forgiven everyone. And even her ex-husband who betrayed her, she would ask, how is Ernie doing? I hope he's well. That's kind of amazing. And so I I took uh, uh, from her, this teacher, She's my, one of my teachers. I, I, I want to take, I've taken on the practice that by the time I get to my deathbed, I will have forgiven everyone. Now, if you take a look at my book that's very big in very small font of everyone who has, pardon the language, fucked me over <laughs> since uh, I was a kid, there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> Anybody got a book like that? <laughs> and, um, but I recognize how painful it is to harbor resentment, grudges, ill will. And I want to be free. So the practices of reconciliation, and, I, and I'll choose that word rather than forgiveness, because we may not be in a place to be able to forgive, but can I begin at first to reconcile, to begin to make amends to myself, to those that I have hurt, to those that have hurt me, 
These, I think, are the three very powerful areas reconciling to the times I've hurt myself through my own shame, negativity, lack of self-worth, unworthiness, so forth. The times that I've inadvertently, knowingly, or unknowingly at times I've hurt another. And thirdly, the times that others have hurt me. This is a very formidable practice. Tomorrow morning I'd like us to do an actual meditation practice on this. There's a very beautiful teaching in the Dharma. In Pali it's called Hiri Otapa. And it's sometimes translated as moral shame, moral dread, but there's a much more poetic and beautiful translation. And it's called The Guardians of the World. I even just I love that. The guardians of the world. And what does that mean? And what that means is that when you come to realize that you have caused some harm, whether it's to yourself or to another. The practice is to learn from it. It's a sense of conscience, if you will, like, oh, because I've done this and I recognize it now, my practice is to not repeat it. And it's a beautiful teaching because that's saying how we pay it back by not doing it again as best we can. The guardians of the world. So it's very beautiful. That can, can I actually learn to acknowledge the pain that I've caused to myself or to another? Own it and acknowledge it, learn from it, and not repeat it. And in time to have, to you know, one of the most difficult places to forgive and have reconciliation is actually to yourself. I just want to read you one thing, and I think we're getting kind of close here. Carl Jung, he says, I can feed the enemy and I can forgive an insult and I can love my, love my enemies. Actually, I, I'm sorry. He says, I can feed the hungry, I can forgive an insult, I can love my enemy. And that these are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me? And that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness. That I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness. That I myself am the enemy who must be loved. That I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What would it be like to begin to open our hearts in such a way, in such a way? Henry James says there's three very important uh, things in life. He says the first is to be kind. The second is to be kind. And the third is to be kind. This kindness. This loving kindness, that which softens the hardened heart. This quality of befriending. Reconciling to ourselves, the reconciling to those I've hurt, reconciling even to those that have hurt me. We can heal our hearts. I have enough material to go on for a few more hours, but I'll spare you that. Thank you so much for your listening. And um, we'll just sit for a few moments.
So I'll just end with a reading from Naomi Shibnai called Kindness. One of my favorite poems. She says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness. And how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out those windows forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian in a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road, and you must see how this could be you. And how that he too is someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow and speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of that cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters, to purchase bread. It's only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Naomi and her husband were on their honeymoon riding in a bus in Colombia. And it was held up by robbers. And an Indian was shot and killed and left on the side of the road. She wandered, dazed, into the closest village. She sat in the plaza, and she wrote this poem right there and then. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. May all beings find the gateways into the heart, and may there be peace. Thank you for your attention and heart. And uh, no need to wait for me. I'll be here for a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.